it's a pleasure to be here uh, in conversation with uh, Daman ma'am and uh, let's kick start the conversation so uh, you know in while the growing conversation regarding mental health is indeed driving yet a slow yet significant change in our country daman singh's book asylum the battle of mental health care in india covers the history of laws as well as institutional care of mental health that was shaped in india so ma'am uh, firstly i would like to understand and you know uh, my curiosity also from a personal standpoint what was the inspiration behind writing uh, the book uh, you know asylum the battle of mental health care in india uh thanks thanks arya and thanks shalaka for being here and talking to me to come to your question <clears throat> you know a few years ago i had become quite interested in the subject of mental health care as provided by government as provided by authorities and when i started reading up on the subject and I, when i started discussing this with various people i realized that uh, in the 16th 17th 18th 19th century uh there was very little understanding of mental illness as an illness you know there were a lot of superstitions surrounding this condition people thought there is some supernatural cause and um it wasn't really seen as a medical issue and uh in those days um one of the most prominent measures was to create asylums for the mentally ill where people affected by this illness would be basically kept uh until they got better and if they did not get better then they would remain uh, you know for very long periods of time now somewhere in the 19th century you know 1800 and something uh the thinking began to change and uh, particularly in europe there was this belief that uh this is a medical condition and it can be treated and in many cases it can also be cured and therefore the whole effort for mental health care changed uh this change came about very slowly uh, and differently in different countries and what i was really curious about is that how did this change come about in india because till about the year 1900 we too had asylums for the mentally ill and we too were following practically you know the old medieval system that uh, this cannot be treated this cannot be cured uh, but around the year 1900 this began to change and uh, that is what i wanted to write about in some detail in my book um i cannot hear you shalaka sorry uh, so i was saying that uh, it's fantastic and that would have you know required a lot of research so moving on from this i would want to understand how was the journey of asylum like uh, you know how how did you go about the research and findings uh, i would want to you know um, know a little more on that front well uh, i found that actually there were very few books on the subject in fact there were no books which talked about the reform part of it there were several books which talked about what uh, you know asylums were like in the 18th century in the early 19th century but there was hardly any published material on what happened 
uh, after the year 1900. So I really had to search very hard and um, I had to go back to primary sources. So I went to the National Archives of India, you know, where they keep all these old fi old government files. Um, yeah. And uh, so, you know, one can go through a file and actually read what different officers said. You can read their memos, you can read their report. So it's really quite a fascinating thing to be doing. Indeed. And I also, I also got um, uh, a lot of information from annual reports of uh, mental hospitals in India. At that, in the early you know, 20th century, there were about 20 such institutions. So there was quite a lot of material there. And then, of course, there were the writings of people, uh, whether they were, uh, you know, officials or doctors who wrote about the subject. So these were actually my main sources of information. Okay. And, and uh, you know, how, how long did it take as in how was the journey like in terms of findings and then how you went about processing it and you know, uh, how, how did it reach the book format? I think in all, I probably spent about four years from start to finish. Uh, I think the first two years were basically collecting information and the last hmm. two years I spent mostly on the writing and editing part. So yeah, about four years. And uh, you you spoke about how the British, you know, uh, went about reforming asylums in India, and what was the impact of uh, their uh, interventions? Could you help us understand a little more on that? Yeah, well, actually, the asylums were a creation of the of British rule. We did not have uh, such institutions in India before they came, so they created these institutions. And um, while they reform, they started to reform their own institutions back home in England. Uh, you know, they they introduced uh, better laws, better policies, a better system of administration. However, in India, they they did uh, much less. Okay. So um, it was only in the year 1900 that the hmm. British government in India sort of took a policy decision that we have to reform the asylums in India. And one of the main uh, objectives was that we must have uh, uh, each asylum must be managed by a full-time specialist. So okay. firstly, it shouldn't be a non-medical person. It has to be a, a senior doctor and that doctor must be trained in handling mental uh, diseases, mental illness. So that I think was the most important uh, reform uh, measure that the British introduced. Okay. So parallelly from the medical side of things, uh, you know, even the medical uh, knowledge or uh, the medical science in terms of psychology or in terms of, you know, mental health parallelly also was elevated. Uh, I mean, if we needed more doctors or if we needed more superintendents to, you know, manage these asylums, I think parallelly those reforms were also brought in. Well, in to some extent, yeah, to some extent, because there was a great uh, shortage of qualified specialists uh, in India at that time, um, mm -hmm. and in those days, our own medical colleges did not have. Uh, departments of psycho psychiatry. I think even departments of psychology were extremely limited. 
So the shortage of specialists was a big problem. It was a big problem through British rule. And actually, it's a big problem even today. We still have a yeah. shortage of specialists. Yeah. Understood. And uh, like while we were talking about how the British, you know, brought asylums to India, what were the challenges faced in the pre-independence area? Sorry, <clears throat> pre-independence pre era, and uh, you know, in terms of how did it impact after the British left, and what was the impact? How we went about implementing change? Well. Uh... During the period of British rule, as I said, there were no big changes in laws and there were no big changes in policy. So it was really left to the individuals who were running each asylum to improve them as best as they could. And if you read the reports, if you read the essays and articles by these uh, individuals, they are really uh, they really show what a tough job these these doctors had. Uh, I mean, they got very little support from government. Uh, other doctors, you know, from outside this specialty really did not appreciate what these doctors were trying to do. The administration was, you know, still had these old fashioned ideas of uh, what is mental illness and, you know, constantly doubting that, look, forget it, you, you know, one can't really do anything about it. And why put money into these institutions? So they had a really tough time and it was they really had to use all their imagination and all their uh, energies went into getting support for their work. Understood, understood. So uh, interestingly, you have a, a chapter entitled Lahore in, in the book and could you could you shed some light on that? Um, the chapter which is titled Lahore is a is very different from the chapters before it and the chapters after it. Um, it is basically about the time of partition, basically set in 1947. Um, as we know, when India was partitioned and you know Pakistan was created, uh, East Pakistan as well as West Pakistan, a large number of people, a huge actually, huge numbers of people uh, from India traveled to Pakistan, uh, basically Muslim people, and huge numbers of Hindu, Sikh, and other communities traveled from Pakistan to India. Now, the governments of Pakistan and the government of India both worked to evacuate these people who, who wanted to move, who had to move. And this whole operation of evacuation and then subsequent rehabilitation. Uh, it took, well, not the rehab part, but the evacuation part took about a year. And then there would be subsequent efforts at rehabilitation. Now, at that point in time, there were a number of mental hospitals in undivided India, uh, which uh, some of those people, their families had gone from India to Pakistan, some people's families had gone from Pakistan to India. So you had a strange situation where the families may have left or they may have even been killed or they were missing, one doesn't really know. But you had the patients who were sort of trapped in these mental hospitals and their future was extremely uncertain. So 
during those two or three years, what was going on in these particular hospitals? What was happening to these particular patients who were just waiting to be transferred? Uh, we don't know very much about it. The, the only source of information on this is the mental hospital at Lahore, because in its own reports, it actually documents what was going on. Then there's also some information available on, you know, meetings that were held between Pakistan and India, Indian authorities on what to do with these people. So it was actually a very, very tragic situation. And uh, eventually it took three years for the two governments to transfer the patients to where they were supposed to go. And the reason why I have included this chapter in my book is that it shows how, uh, how the government was not prepared to deal with this situation. And while it, it was, it did manage to deal with, you know, citizens, other citizens, it, it took a really long time to deal with citizens who were mentally ill. And that is something that sort of uh, situation continued to exist for a very long time, at least in India. I don't know about Pakistan. Right, right. Uh, that's quite an insightful information, in, insightful um, chapter, I believe, because uh, it, it marks the, you know, it marks the change from where we were and how, how things uh, progressed after the independence. Um, I, I believe that, uh, you know, a lot of uh, these reforms would also revolve around, would have also revolved around treatment, uh, treating, treating the patients uh, in the asylums, right? And I believe recreation happens to be a very important aspect of, uh, you know, uh, cure or mental health overall so uh, apart from recreation uh, could you shed some light on what were the other therapies or treatments which were you know uh, prescribed during during that time well till the 1920s and perhaps part of the 1930s what did what did the uh, mental hospital the good mental hospitals try to give to its patients they believed that patients must get good food, they must get enough rest, they must have uh, forms of um, recreation, they must have entertainment, they must be kept busy in some sort of meaningful activity, and they must have physical exercise. So these were very general uh, <clears throat> forms of treatment. Then uh, certain additional forms were added on and those forms of treatment or those therapies were not sort of for the whole population. They were like the, the doctors would assess a patient and say, okay, this patient needs this particular therapy and that patient needs a different therapy. So uh, various options were tried out. One, one such option was say hydrotherapy. You know, it was believed okay. that if a person uh, uh, lies down with his head up in a tub of warm water for a certain number of hours, uh, that has a sort of healing effect under circum in certain um, symptoms. 
So okay. that was one sort of therapy. So there were a number of therapies. Now, the important thing to note is that these therapies were being tried in different parts of the world. We were learning from different countries. Uh, uh, and they were all sort of experimental in nature. None of these therapies had been proved that, yes, this will lead to uh, good results. But the mm -hmm. effort was to learn from whatever is happening in the rest of the world and to try out those therapies in India and sort of adapt them for Indian conditions, Indian patients, and uh, hope for the best, basically. They were continuously evolving, learning, and That's helping right. each other out across the globe. And some of some of these uh, do some of these therapies have you know uh, gained uh, stance in today's practices as well. Well, a lot of therapies were later on, say around in the by the nineteen fifties. A lot of these therapies were you know analyzed, and they they were just found completely un unnecessary and not at all helpful. So a lot of things were weeded out along the way, but a few things did continue. Uh, and uh, what really changed things in terms of therapies was that in the 1950s and 1960s, a lot of new drugs, new medicines were uh, invented. And uh, these had a more uh, dramatic effect on certain illnesses, not all illnesses. But, you know, you had antidepressants, you had mood stabilizers, uh, antipsychotic medicines. So all these only started coming in the 1950s. Yeah, that was actually my next question about, you know, medicinal uses. But thank you so much. And, uh, you know, um, I would also want to understand, like, how are the legal or government protocols defining the mental health situation today in our country? Um, I would say that for a very long time, this uh, legal and policy matters were uh, deeply, deeply neglected. And in fact, till 1993, we were still following a law which had basically, uh, you know, had been passed in 1858. But we are, I think, extremely fortunate that we now have a new Mental Health Care Act, which was uh, passed in 2017. So it's just a couple of years old. And this law is a complete reversal of what the old law used to be. Under the old law, the, the patient had uh, no rights. You know, okay. it, was, it was all about um, how to control the, uh, the how the authority, it was all about the authority's control over the patient. But the new law has sort of turned that upside down. The new law says that every patient is entitled to get proper uh, treatment and care, and the government must provide proper treatment and care. It also says that um, this patient uh, has the right uh, to determine what sort of treatment he or she is getting. So you can't impose your will uh, on the patient. The patient must uh, be told that, look, this is your problem. This is what it involves. We want to try this kind of treatment. And the patient would then agree or not agree. There would be, in some cases, you know, a patient might be so ill at that point in time where he or she cannot take a decision. 
then the law says that a representative of this person can take this decision. So uh, the law also specified that uh, what kind of treatment and care must be provided, uh, not just in mental hospitals, but in general hospitals, in private nursing homes, in private hospitals, any, any medical facility uh, uh, that admits a patient, uh, it said, it laid down the guidelines that this is how they should be run, this is how they should care for patients. So this is a very, very uh, revolutionary law for us. Yeah, and, and I think it has come at the right time uh, because, uh, you know, we, we are all facing the post effects of the pandemic, right? There are a lot of effects. People, people are not even aware that they are mentally affected or even in my case, I was, I was not aware that I was uh, suffering from accumulated stress. And that's when, you know, things stumbled and I realized that, uh, and <clears throat> this law will definitely reform a lot of things in India, especially from a corporate standpoint as well, because a lot of organizations are also taking measures to, you know, consider uh, mental health as an important, uh, uh, I mean, companies are defining policies for mental health of their employees, right? So, ma'am, uh, one, one interesting thing I would want to know from you is we come across a new piece of content on men mental health every now and then. Social media is filled with, you know, some of the other thing uh, about body positivity or, um, you know, uh, in terms of uh, taking things slow, etc, etc. But how, how, the, how is it helping the situation? Is it really helping um, overcoming the stigma, fear, shame, etc? What are your thoughts on this? I think social media has a really important role to play. Uh, simply because, uh, you know, so many people have access today to social media, to information, to opinions, to views. And this sort of forum was not available earlier. So uh, if one wants to spread positive uh, information, if one wants to spread stories about how mental illness uh, can be handled and what it involves, uh, I think social media is a very, very important tool. And, you know, you mentioned the word stigma and shame. You know, these things I can understand that in the olden days when we had no clue as to why, what is mental illness, why does it happen? And we just assume that, you know, this is something really ghastly and will ruin one's life. And therefore, you didn't tell anybody about it. Uh, but that's those are those days are gone. Today is very different. Today we know what mental illness is. We know how it affects our uh, our bodies. We know how it affects our life. And there are so many therapies that can help people to deal with it. So if, if social media and other forms uh, help to spread this message, then the days of stigma and the days of shame should really be over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, on that positive note, I would, you know, also want to take your opinion on how these words of about insanity or mental illness, asylum, how how these words have also, you know, uh, uh, in ter in terms of uh, in the olden days, calling 
anyone insane or using these terminologies was was something which was not really okay and it's still not okay but how has the society progressed in terms of using these terminologies and you know embracing embracing the change from a mental health standpoint i think what has happened is um our ideas have progressed our i you know uh, our language has not progressed as fast so while we know now that uh, you know mental illness is an illness and it's not you know some supernatural thing supernatural. we are still using the same words to explain these things uh, as you said now you know nowadays it's it's considered very wrong and uh, very insensitive to use yeah. the word say for instance lunatic now in one time yes. lunatic was you know just a well it meant somebody who has this problem but today if you use the word lunatic it is considered like a gali you know uh, right. there used to be a time when somebody who was mentally challenged or had an intellectual disability was called officially officially called an idiot now if you mm -hmm. use the word idiot you know that is that is virtually a crime so our language yeah. has hasn't changed as fast as our knowledge has and that's something we all need to work on and again i think social media and the mainstream media because you find that actually mainstream media continues to use a uh, uh, fairly insensitive language both with respect yeah. to mental illness and people who are affected by mental illness yeah the awareness can definitely happen through social media and other external platforms and i think awareness is the key i think uh, you know overcoming stigma is the battle half one um, and uh, you know ma'am uh, would you would you want to read an excerpt from the book and give our readers a sneak peek before we close sure i'd love to read a short uh, passage if i get too long you can always interrupt me and tell me that oh. you're running out of time That's okay. No, no, that's absolutely all right. Uh, this is like a virtual book reading, and I'm really looking forward to it. Okay, so I'm going to read a uh, a bit about one particular uh, mental hospital in British Times, um, and one particular doctor who ran this hospital from about 1920 to 1934. So for 14 years, he was in charge, and this was a hospital uh, in Ranchi. which was only meant for european and anglo indian patients okay so i'm going to read now from here uh, given its profile ranchi was the best place for an alienist the word alienist refers to the doctor in charge you know it's like psychiatrist in those days the word was alienist given its profile ranchi was the best place for an alienist who wanted to make a difference Dr Owen Berkeley Hill who served here from 1920 to 1934 was a forceful personality and he was a man of many ideas Ranchi was the first mental hospital to liberate its patients from curbs in everyday life soon after the hospital opened it put a stop to the use of restraints and seclusion um restraints were like handcuffs and chains which earlier in earlier days were used and seclusion refers to the fact that many patients used to be locked up you know 
for either long periods of time during the day. Some people were just locked up permanently. So Dr. Berkeley Hill stopped all this in his hospital. By 1935, the hospital had taken the radical step of removing locks and bolts from the doors of all wards. This meant that patients were, were never locked in, whether by day or by night. They were free to roam the premises as and when they wished. From 1937, they no longer had to wear the ready-made clothes that were handed out by the hospital. Instead, they could choose the fabric and the design of outfits that would then be tailored to their measurements. If they liked, their clothes would even be brought over from home. A small shop was opened on the campus where patients could buy various things for themselves. In another first, Ranchi did away with the strict segregation of the sexes. While men and women resided in separate sections of the hospital, they came together for common activities during the day. All patients who were fit to work were supposed to attend occupational therapy each morning, but they were offered a large variety of choices and they were free to pick the ones they liked. During this day at Ranchi, patients remained connected with the outside world. In the early years, dependable patients were allowed to go for walks outside the premises without an escort. By 1925, virtually all patients were eligible for this privilege. Women patients, however, were normally accompanied by an ayah. As patients preferred to patronize the local market, the shop on campus was closed down. Instead, people were free to, to use the local market. Patients were free to write and receive as many letters as they wished. Most of these letters were not censored and visitors could drop in to see them during working hours on any day of the week. Once a patient had improved enough to be considered for discharge, he could be sent home for a period of two months. And if that went well, he would then be formally discharged. This system had been put in place as early as 1922. When a more vulnerable patient was discharged, um, the volunteers of an aftercare committee would keep an eye on him and report back to Ranchi. Every six months, the hospital sent out a welfare inquiry letter to which former patients and their families would reply. Is there time for another few minutes? Yeah. Dr. Berkeley Hill did not confine his ideas to the institution that he ran. A prolific writer, he contributed to various newspapers and journals. He also addressed a large number of scientific, medical, social, and religious gatherings. One of his concerns was that the medical profession in Britain and in British India did not pay enough attention to the psychological roots of mental disorders. He believed that doctors must have a basic understanding of human psychology. A trained psychoanalyst himself, Dr. Berkeley Hill underlined the benefits of psychotherapy. So he was not all about, you know, drugs and medicine. Um, he also argued the case for psychiatric treatment outside mental hospitals. In his view, an outpatient clinic would enable people to seek treatment at an early stage of illness 
and for disorders that were relatively less disabling. And apart from building public confidence, these clinics would give psychiatry a place in mainstream medicine. So they were talking about OPDs, but there were no OPDs in those days. Okay, I'll just do another few 30 seconds. Although Rati was privileged and Dr. Berkeley Hill was persuasive, this did not mean that he always got his way. Much to his annoyance, some of his ideas were shot down and others were abandoned after he retired. But very many of them would prevail. Thank you so much, Daman ma'am. Uh, over to you, Arya. I would take a moment and acknowledge the support of Westline Publication as the association is valuable to OCLF. At the outset, I would like to thank Ms. Daman Singh and Ms. Shalaka Kulkarni for joining us today. We wish to get, uh, we wish we get to hear you both again and be equally enlightened as we are today. And for my dear massive audience, I am sure that after witnessing this conversation, you all are taking home an enriched version of yourself. Just I will. Thank you for joining us today. Until I see you again, this is Arya Mol signing off.